This is Broccoli. Content that's good for you. This episode contains conversations around sexual assault and violence, which some listeners may find triggering. Listener discretion is advised. Remember life before the pandemic? When you could go into a shop and not get glared at as you stuff 10 packs of whole wheat penny in your bag. I can't wait to tell my kids about the time our entire country had an identity crisis over toilet etiquette. You know who's completely in their element right now, though? Naomi Campbell. The Queen Mother warned us about disinfecting everything years ago. This week, she was spotted wearing a hazmat suit, face mask, goggles and gloves on a flight. And quite frankly, none of us are laughing now. At least there's humour to get us through these uncharted waters. Coronavirus skank officially exists, with musician Danae dancing as he covers his mouth. There are so many good memes about which songs are long enough to sing in order to kill the virus while washing your hands. Some recommend singing Happy Birthday twice, but my favourite suggestion is to recite the entire You Won Jane, Enjoy the Money speech by Peter Marsh from Come Dine With Me. If there's one thing you should do as you start cancelling your social plans this week is listen to Riz Ahmed's latest album, The Long Goodbye. The Emmy-winning, Wembley-born actor has released his second album and it is phenomenal. It's a conceptual piece based around the idea that British Asians are stuck in an abusive relationship with the UK. And now they're being dumped because of the accumulative racism building up over the years. There's also an accompanying short film. It's disturbing but a real insight into where Britain's hostile environment may be heading. I hope for some, it's a real wake-up call. This is Your Broccoli Weekly. I'm your host, Diora. If you're self-isolating at home and therefore have a lot of time on your hands, make sure you subscribe, rate and review our show. In today's episode, we will be discussing government plans for the COVID-19 outbreak, the 2020 budget and the recent conviction of Grime artist Solo45. I'm joined by political editor Moya Lothian-McLean and journalist and documentary maker Raya El-Salahi. This is the worst public health crisis for a generation. I must level with you, level with the, the British public. This week, the World Health Organization has labelled the outbreak of COVID-19 as a pandemic. As of recording this episode, 140,000 cases have been diagnosed across the world. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has announced that the UK is moving to the second stage of the government's four-part plan, which is delaying the spread of the virus. Delay is where social distancing measures are considered. People who show even minor signs of respiratory tract infections such as a cough or a fever have been told to self-isolate. From Friday, school trips abroad have been banned and older people and those with pre-existing conditions have been told not to go on cruises. But schools are not closing right now. Announcing the measures after an emergency COBRA meeting, Johnson said, some people compare it to a seasonal flu. Alas, that is not right. Owing to the lack of immunity, this disease is more dangerous. It is going to spread further and I must level with you. I must level with the British public. 
many more families are going to lose loved ones before their time. Raya, what did you make of Boris Johnson's statement? So Boris Johnson comes out to give this announcement following the emergency COBRA committee. And he has the distinct look of someone that is just in it over his head. He looks tired. He um, His intonation was all over the place. It's absolutely right that I'm sure people will die. I'm sure people are going to die as a result of what's happening with coronavirus. However, delivering it in that way is not the right way to do it. That said, a lot of focus has been on that line. And actually, the line for me that was more interesting was the push from just if you've got uh, symptoms to stay home. If you even have so much as a cough or a cold, you're now being advised to say, stay home for seven days. I thought that's really interesting because that's, you know, if you live in a city, a big city like London or anywhere else around the country, you are hearing people cough, you're seeing people sniffle all the time. Should they not be out in public for the next seven days? Should those people be sitting at home uh, and not leaving the house? Pff, who knows? Exactly. Now, Moya, do you think the government is acting quickly enough? I would say no looking at... So we're about, I think, 10 days behind Italy in terms of um, the phases of coronavirus. And what we saw in Italy was kind of a blueprint of what not to do. I'm obviously not a member of the Italian government, so I can't criticise them too much. But what they did there was there was a couple of cases in northern Italy... And what they didn't realise is that just because somebody was exhibiting symptoms doesn't mean that somebody else didn't have it. So a lot of people were asymptomatic and also that a lot of people had come into contact with others who'd had the disease before they managed to diagnose it. They focused a lot on people who were foreigners instead of focusing on native Italians, as it were, because there was a bit of prejudice in the way they diagnosed it. So there's one man who went to hospital and he was he basically infected loads of nurses, loads of people in the cafeteria, because they just didn't think he would have it. And he his outbreak kind of sparked off what's gone on. And now they've had to lock down the whole country. And I think what we're seeing here is the same kind of laissez-faire, like we're going to let it happen. That's the best way. This is how we're not going to overwhelm the hospitals. But it seems completely counterproductive because if we don't take these drastic measures now, then we later on we are going to see it getting worse. And yes, containment is not the total answer. We need a long-term strategy. But at the same time, we do need to restrict the spread as much as possible and take the measures possible and also convey the seriousness of this by not closing the schools, by not shutting down certain events, by not actually officially from the top doing it and relying on individuals to just stay home and self-isolate. Where there's no, we're not kind of conveying how bad this is or how bad it could get. And I think we do need to restrict and contain before we can start thinking about the long-term strategy to manage it. Because if loads of people die or loads of people get sick, the strain is not just primary, it's secondary. The economic disruption that's going to come from the people not being able to work, the lack of sick pay, rent's not going to get paid, mortgages aren't going to get paid. This is what we're seeing now is also the fragility of capitalism. I think personally, um, and but how also the, all the pre-existing issues within exactly our society. That we, we haven't got we haven't got the safety nets now that we should have from the state that were made for situations like this. And it, it's the sick pay thing, you know, ninety four pounds twenty five a week is not enough to sustain people, and two million people are not even going to get that. And that's more people people in the media have been criticising that amount of money, which is great, but also that's more than you get on benefits. So it's it what we're seeing now is it really this system and its shortcomings really being exposed, but also the fact the government aren't really willing to step in and help out. They're still committing to the classic restricted state approach. And it doesn't matter how much money you pour into the NHS right now, if you don't have the active on the ground support or infrastructure, it's going to be overwhelmed and it's going to fail. So no, I don't think they're acting quickly enough. 
Schools are a bit of an interesting mm. topic of conversation because some people are saying that there's not actually that much evidence that closing schools will help slow the spread of the virus. And then you have another issue of if you close the schools, who are gonna, who's going to look after the children if the parents are still working? Exactly. It's, it's This is what I mean. The problems that we talk about, if you look at the root cause of why we can't do these things, it's because the structure isn't there. There is no infrastructure in terms of care systems. It's like these things are going to just break down. A lot of people who run healthcare services, as you say, a lot of them are working parents. Like if they close the schools, how can they go to the hospitals? How can they help treat people? One of a senior member of the NHS was saying on Channel 4, and she came on and she said, look, we're going to lose our colleagues. We're going to be burying our colleagues. And I think it's awful that members of our frontline healthcare services have already had to go in with that mindset that they are going to have to sacrifice so much because we're so stretched. Um, so I, I can't comment exactly on the schools because I'm not, you know, I don't know how this illness spreads in children. I haven't been studying them closely. But, yeah, or, yeah, but because they're yeah. saying that... Um, even if children get yeah. it, they might be asymptomatic, exactly. and so they might be carriers. So there's still quite a lot of things that we don't know. And I think that's the scary thing about this virus. There's just so much unknown information, right? And I think also, are we actually listening? Because scientists are saying all very different things, mm. right? So the scientists we're listening to are saying that we need to make sure that we time it right when we start shutting everything down. Suppress because the, the other issue is if you contain it not too much but yeah if you contain mm. it very quickly it can just respread so there has to be almost like a fine balance between people getting it and herd immunity and i say mm. that in quote marks because i don't know if anyone actually understands what that means in the government um and yeah so it's it's all very tricky I just don't think that that information is being communicated very well. Do you feel like there's a distrust between the media and the people and the government, Rhea? I think actually the media has a big part to play in that distrust. We are journalists. Um, we're not medical professionals as far as I'm aware. We're not in a position to give advice. We can uh, relay the advice that's coming from experts and absolutely give counter arguments for that. But I actually find it really unhelpful to look at, for example, the Mail Online website. You look at the BBC app at the moment. You look at any news website and the first few pages mm. I found are quite sensationalist. So I had an incident um, where I was supposed to be travelling to Tenerife right before the coronavirus outbreak happened in that part of the world. And as a result, was asked to work from home for a week, not officially isolate but just not be in the office and obviously had a lot of time on my hands so found myself looking at a lot of these apps looking at a lot of these news sites and actually found myself getting really panicked and I'm not a pan uh, an anxious panic-stricken type of person I'm a journalist I'm used to going into situations where you have to be level-headed but having the amount of stuff come at me I found myself having to just switch off from it because I do think that the media at this time has a really important role to play in not um, fueling panic. What I would say I would totally agree with that and add to it that the problem with the media is they want the clicks. So we're used to a clickbait model and they need news. And this is the big news. And now they're, they're focused on 24-7 coverage of an incident. And because, but because this is something like we've never seen, I guess, in my lifetime or before to this scale of, in terms of pandemic, then they're using the same models of reporting that they've been using for other things, round-the-clock coverage, constant, every angle explored. But it's not helpful because, as you say, we need clear facts, we need information that cuts through, and we don't need these angles. You know, how many people are going to die? How many, like... X, what do we need to close? Um, but we need to just listen, like sit down and listen. I, so many people are panicked. My housemate today was talking about how she went into the shop to buy hand wash. And 
the man saw her buying hand wash and he was so worried when she asked for a bag, he just threw the bag at her because he didn't want to touch her because she was worried about isolation. And it's that kind of like level of fear. And the fear is what's going to make it worse because you think every ache, every pain is going to be an outbreak. And now they're not testing en masse. That's the fear of the unknown is also going to add to this. The anxieties that people are going to have from just the amount of information they're getting, but the amount of they can do about it, they're a complete impasse. Um, but aren't they going to be testing up to 10,000 people a day? Like, I'm hearing very different figures again. So the latest they're, they're saying they're going to do with testing mm. is you will only be tested if you're in hospital and you are showing signs of the virus already, which to me seems bizarre, but mm. I'm not a health expert, so who am I to judge? It's very difficult because there's a lot of people who will slip through nets and that. You're talking about the most vulnerable as well, um, such as, like, if you're homeless um, if you're somebody who's very isolated already and not through self-isolation, if you're in communities where perhaps you don't have access to that medical care and then you don't get tested on top of that, it's it's we are going to see the most disadvantaged suffer most from these policies. But also, as I said, the mental strain and anxiety that comes from not knowing, that is huge. So say you do have the flu, but you think it's, you know, coronavirus. There is a huge strain in that and it's going to make it 10 times worse. You're going to be taking... I've heard people who are talking about how they're too scared to touch anything. And people who already have conditions, you know, OCD or anxiety, they're also been speaking quite widely about how much this is affecting them already. I think all around, you're just going to see people suffer. And it's terrible. The government is not putting anything in place for that. But then on the other hand, you do have people who are saying, oh, it's all fake news. It's mm. all the media trying to like make money from clicks, you know, stop overreacting. It's only the elderly dying and people with pre-existing conditions. How does that make you feel when you hear that? I do think firstly, it's important to put this into context. So mm. 596 people confirmed with coronavirus in this country so far. Health professionals say they expect that actually the real number is upwards to 10,000, 10 deaths. So, you know, to put this in context, yes, I can understand why some people think we are massively overreacting. However, the idea that because old people and people with existing health conditions are the ones that will suffer the most, we shouldn't be concerned about that is so Mm. flawed. These old people are your parents, they're your grandparents, the people with health conditions are your friends and your family members. Who do you think is going to die? It's not somebody else. It's people in your family. It's your loved ones. You should be concerned about this, but you shouldn't be panicking. But what I would also add to that as well is it's the thing that I think people are forgetting when they're saying that we're overreacting is the secondary effects of this. So as we've said, the economic effect, um, the effect it will have on, I guess, society, the strain it's going to put on the services, support services, workers, lack of pay, like the ramifications of this are going to go on and on. They're talking about a global um, recession potentially coming from this, which would be great. That's three recessions I've lived through in my life. <laughs> you, you make a really impo- <laughs> interesting point, though, about the fact that this is highlighting social divisions. Mm. And I think even the advice we're getting so far, I saw some uh, the latest Public Health England advice, the new guidance that's just been issued, was around um, using separate bathrooms. And I don't know about you two, but I don't have a separate no. bathroom in my house to use. And the advice is making assumptions around, for example, I mean, this isn't the advice, but bulk buying mm. is only accessible to certain people. If you're on a low income and you get paid weekly, you cannot bulk buy. What are you supposed to do? Not only can you not bulk buy the goods that you might rely on, the low-priced pastas, the rices, they're they're gone. They're gone. The hand washers, people with immune-suppressed conditions who need these things but might not have the funds to always buy them as well, their normal anti-back, etc., that's all gone because people who have the resources are able to buy them up. This is the problem, again, with the finite resource mentality. When we're told that things are in short supply, people are more desperate, the demand is higher. And I saw um, on Twitter as well that some corner shop had started pricing hand wash at £24.95. So not only... Are these resources being used up? Surely that's illegal. (laughs) You think so. But no, that's capitalism, baby. Free market. 
people are going to start to realise that, as I said, the systems aren't there and they will start to blame hopefully the government, but they will, might just a- aim it at the people who are using these things. To push back a little bit on the idea that we live in a straight-up capitalist country, mm. we have the Competition Markets Authority. So the idea that hand wash is being sold for 25 quid should be against the law. And there are absolutely checks and balances in this country that should be figuring that out. And actually, mm. thank God for social media for highlighting that, because otherwise it would be the poorest that we're losing out. And that should be something we're talking about. Yeah, I, st- I still obviously think that um, the people at the shop and will suffer. But as you say... The authorities are there. They're just not doing PIM. We've also heard a lot about herd immunity. Now, let's just talk about that for a second because I've been on a real journey with this. At first, I thought it was complete nonsense that, you know, we were just not following any other countries in the way that they're dealing with the coronavirus. You know, for example, the way, you know, South Korea is dealing with it and other countries have successively repressed those numbers. But now I'm hearing that maybe... There is some logic behind this. Can you explain what you think about herd immunity? So herd immunity, from what I've read about it, it is the theory, and it does exist, it's a thing. Because that's how vaccines work. Yeah, that's how vaccines work. So if 95% of the population is immunised against an illness or a disease like measles, then the remaining proportion of the population who don't have that vaccination or immunity, then they should be protected simply by the fact, dint of the fact everyone around them is. So, but you need like 19 out of 20 people to have this immunity. So the government, Johnson and Sir Patrick Valance, who's I think is the chief scientific medical advisor, um, they said we want to get herd immunity. We want to use herd immunity long term to protect the population and suppress the um, impact of coronavirus on our healthcare services. And also because there is a potential, as we've mentioned before, Mm. that it might basically reappear. Yeah. So I take issue with this because Valence has said he wants 60% of the population to develop herd immunity or catch coronavirus for this to work. But that is not how herd immunity works. You need a much higher proportion. Also, that would mean about 400,000 deaths if there's a rate of 1% 1% fatality. And at the moment, who has it on 3.4? But obviously, as we've seen in this country, the death rate is very low. And if more people have it, then we think the death rate's even lower in proportion. They're trying to do the flatten the curve thing, which they're doing in America, which is they know that people are going to get it at this stage, but they want to reduce the pressure that that places upon the health systems. Um, but I think what they're doing is really underestimating the British public and how much they love to go to A&E. God, they love it. Um, so you can say all you like, herd immunity, okay, great. Well, we're, we're going to flatten this curve. We're going to let people get it. We're gonna, it's going to happen slowly. But as soon as we have a cough or a cold, we're, we're straight down there. I heard that loads of people went, went down to A&E after um, Boris was like, you can shake hands. People, it's fine. And people were like, oh, well, I'll go shake hands with some coronavirus patients immunized. They're coming at it from this scientific approach. Great. But people aren't logical. People aren't rational. And people don't think like that. So as soon as they start feeling ill, they're heading straight down to the hospital and they're going, oh, I, I think I've got coronavirus. I need testing right now. We're a nation of hypochondriacs. We talked a lot about social media and I really hope that anyone listening to this who is concerned is not going to go on social media to get any facts because ultimately mm. knowledge is power. And if you want to know what to do about this, go to the experts, go to Public Health England, go to nhs.co.uk. Do not rely on what you're reading on social media or even actually what you're seeing published by newspapers or media outlets. Go to the source and find out the advice you need there. I believe this represents 
New Chancellor Rishi Sunak has delivered his first budget in quite extraordinary circumstances. He opened the budget by saying, I know how worried people are. What everyone needs to know is we're doing everything we can to keep this country and our people healthy and financially secure. This is an issue above party. So let's talk about the measures announced to deal with coronavirus first. Raya, what are those? Some of the top lines that came out of this year's budget um, are the money being spent on the NHS. And this is really a budget that is to mitigate the economic impact of the coronavirus outbreak. So we're seeing um, an extra £5 billion emergency fund for the NHS. We're seeing uh, statutory sick pay being confirmed for workers being asked to self-isolate. Also, a huge amount of money, um, a bit of a surprise, actually, to tackle homelessness, £650 million. Um, that's actually, in the bigger scale of things, only 6,000 more spaces for rough sleepers. So really, actually, a lot more could be done um, and a billion pounds to remove unsafe cladding from public and private housing higher than 18 metres and that's in the wake of the Grenfell disaster. So some really interesting bits coming out of that and also lots not being done. What are some of the things that are not being done? Okay, to start with, the Grenfell um, Building Safety Fund. There's actually, you know, it's brilliant that money has finally been committed to this. Why has this taken so long to happen? And furthermore, why is it the government, therefore us, that is paying for this when developers who have got rich off the back of these buildings being made are not being forced to to cough up the money? Preach! (laughs) I mean, that... It's a perfect example of actually if you find the budget boring and you switch off, you fail to realise that you're being made to pay for something that should not be your responsibility. All of this money essentially is taxpayers' money going towards these things. All of this money is taxpayers' money and you are now paying for something that developers have managed to get very rich off for lots and lots of years and in the wake of the Grenfell tragedy have not taken responsibility for. Why are we paying for it? You know, it's being lauded as something to be really celebrated. And absolutely, if you live in a house where you've been trapped or you're worried about the cladding on your your building, yeah, of course you're going to appreciate that something is now being done. I just think the wrong people are being forced to spend their money to pay for it. Moya, what has been your takeaway from this? I would say it's a budget that is very showy, but not very telly, in the sense that they've promised that they're doing a lot of things. But if you look into it, then a lot of the money they're pledging is actually makes up less of what's been cut. The spending actually reverse is cuts made over the last decade by only a quarter, which when you think about it is not much in terms. I saw somebody talk about it in terms of imagine that for every pound cut from a budget, then they're making up 13p of that. So it's more like they're trying to flood money in and look like they're spending a lot. But the cuts that have been made over the last decade are so severe, it's not actually making up the ground in the same way. And also, if you look at the things, the way that it's presented, it's really interesting. Sunak has pledged about six hundred billion on rails, roads, housing, but I seem to remember a um, leader of a political party, Mr. Jeremy Corbyn, pledging that much, and it was ridiculed. Where's this magic money tree? Corbyn's going to ruin the economy, a black hole. Whereas Sunak's referred to by the Daily Mail as Doctor Feelgood. Someone else called it the road to Rishi's road to riches. I think that was the Telegraph. So the papers are very much like this is great. They're spending loads, but if you dig into it, they're not actually spending that much. And within that, they are spending lots on things like the police forces and the NHS. But if you look outside of that, in terms of the economy and how it's moving as well, the average household, um, according to the Resolution Foundation, because of the weak economy, will be £300 worth off. 
and up to £600 if the coronavirus continues its economic impact. Um, and if you also look at the other policies they're doing, for example, the immigration surcharge on healthcare. For people who don't know what this is, it's basically a charge that people who um, migrate to this country, move to this country, have to pay every year. And it's gone up from £400 to £624 a year. It's part of their immigration policy. It's part of this hostile policy to try and keep out people that they see as from a lower economic background. Um, but we all know what's going to happen there. It's going to be the rich people are migrating in and they haven't fed the economy in the way people think they do. So, um, so it's once again, just it's thousands of people will not be able to pay that and will be left absolutely bereft. There's also in the budget been a promise to make the UK less London-centric, mm. right? And levelling up the the rest of the country um, by putting money into infrastructure and transport. So do you think that's good? Do you think that's going to happen? It's promises we have to see what comes of it. I don't want to complete, like, obviously, I'm not the biggest fan of the Conservatives and I don't trust them, but that doesn't mean some of what they can do might not have positive effects. If they do invest in the right areas, okay, great. Um, for example, they are devolving West Yorkshire. They've been calling for that for so long. I think they're getting 120 million. It means they'll have their own mayor of the area. They can they can do make decisions more independently. They have their own in like big chunks of money to spend as they wish. Um, and West Yorkshire has um, real racial inequality as well. Something I've been looking at because obviously I write a lot about race and politics. So that's the angle I take on it. So. The rate of unemployment there for BAME individuals is twice that of white individuals. So in these areas, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see where that money goes, how these decisions are made. And yeah, the Tories might just be doing it because they want to cling on to these voters that have so crossed the so-called red wall, etc. But if that does have a positive outcome, I can't 100% trash it on that basis. I'd like to see how it plays out and if that money actually does go towards funding the projects it needs and the grassroots it needs. But um they can't just throw the money at the problem and hope it's fixed. There needs to be like structure and streamline and the infrastructure to make it actually effective. Well, the Chancellor, in good news, has also confirmed in his budget that the government is to scrap the controversial tampon tax and abolish VAT in all women's sanitary products from 2021. How do you feel about that? Do you think this is a step forward for women in our society? It's a little, it's a little toe in the water, is it not? Where's the gender pay equality? Where's the pay equality? Where is the childcare? Where is all the other funding for the extra things that women have a tax on? Where's the whole pink taxes need to be scrapped? Why do we pay more for every other single, even like little tiny products like deodorants? Why is that two pounds more? Um, so it's a start. It's a step. It's something we've been calling for for years, but it's not, it's not a complete victory. And I also think we have to look at, again, gender inequality and, and financial inequality in terms of like class and structure. So we can't just be like, guess what, we've, you know, we've taken the VAT off tampons, now you're all sorted. Also, not everyone who uses tampons identifies as a woman anymore. And it's, 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 it's there's a lot more in, up in that. What we need to do is really be, again, funding societies and communities from the ground up and making sure that those resources are going to those who need it most. Um, so yeah, it's fine, but it's, it's not going to solve a lot of problems that face women or um, self-identifying women in, in 2020. Having said that, I do think that feminists, as a card-carrying feminist myself, mm. get a really bad rap. And this is a success. This is a result mm. of grassroots um, women that are seeing women in poverty, people who have periods in poverty, and actually doing something about it. I was really interested when this um, news was announced 
because of what it actually means in real terms. So a 20 pack of tampons, you're going to save um, seven pence. We're not talking about a lot of money here. A 12 pack of pads um, cut by five pence. So that's 40 quid the average woman will save in her lifetime. We're not talking about a huge amount of money here and more needs to be done. This is a nod in the right direction, but let's do more. Sorry. Wow, I did not expect those numbers. Tiny, also, right? Also, absolutely. And it's this is the thing. We can't knock it. It is good. It's a nod. But at the same time, there is so much more they can be doing. And sometimes they fix the very easy problems first and act like it's, on their part, a huge concession. It's not. There is so much more we have to do. And I, But I do think that women and, fem, like women and the feminists, we are getting very angry about that. And we're realising that just surface level, superficial changes are not what's going to change gender inequality. Finally, let's discuss the recent conviction of grime artist Solo45. This week has been what some people would describe as a win for the Me Too movement. Harvey Weinstein was finally sentenced to 23 years in prison for rape and sexual assault. On this side of the pond, grime artist Andy Inoki, aka Solo45, has been found guilty of raping four women and holding them against their will. During a trial at Briston Crown Court, the 32-year-old admitted he would terrorise women during rough sex. He denied the allegations but was found guilty of 30 charges. Enoki, who's from London but has a flat in Bristol, was part of grime collective Boy Better Know. He's best known for his track, Feed Him to the Lions. The investigation began when one of the victims told friends and the police what had happened and then officers seized his mobile phones and laptop, which led the police to three other women. He met the women at his gigs and developed relationships with him before assaulting them. Jill McNamara from Crown Prosecution Service said, We were able to prove that Anoki was a violent, controlling narcissist and bully who took pleasure in inflicting pain and suffering upon his victims. He filmed many of his attacks on his mobile phone, and this footage, along with the brave testimony of his victims, created a compelling case against him. He claimed sexual activity with these women was consensual role-play and pointed to the fact that some of the women stayed in a relationship with him after the assaults. However, the CPS was able to prove none of these women had consented to the sexual activity or the violence and threats made against them. The fear he elicited must have made it obviously they did not consent. This is a really awful story. Why does it seem that often there's confusion between rough sex and actual torture in cases of rape? I don't think there is a confusion between rough sex and actual torture. I think uh, Solo 45 knew exactly what he was doing and the line. I think the difference only comes when he gets to court and wants to avoid being prosecuted for his crimes. It's the same with the Grace Milani case. Um, they use, the defendant there used the um, excuse of we were having rough sex and because Grace had also in the past with partners um, been known to enjoy having what they call rough sex, then it was taken into account. Of course, he was eventually convicted, thank goodness. But in if, when you look at the difference between the rough sex that she apparently enjoyed, there were safe words. It was with partners she trusted. It was not sex that ever hurt her. It was sex that was consensual. Um, and I think it is people people say that they can't tell. You know, the lines are blurred. The lines are not blurred. You know, you know when the sex that you're having, the partner you're having it with, that's why we have safe words. That's where we have, you know, mutual trust. That's where we talk about things and communicate. Solo 45 openly admitted that he enjoyed causing women pain. He liked videoing that pain. He liked documenting that pain. He went far beyond rough sex. He waterboarded people. He forcibly penetrated them. He beat them. That is not rough sex. That is abuse. And what we do need to clamp down on and what I think the courts also need to understand a lot more 
is sexual politics and how to deal with them because this rough sex defence keeps coming up. And we are seeing a rise also in, you know, the popularity of certain like light BDSM activities like choking, etc., which is interesting because it's due to like memes. But there is obviously a difference. But people are capitalising on that to try and get away with abusing women, particularly during sex. Um, but it's not it's not just women. I mean, we saw that case recently of Reynard Singh, who was the Manchester rapist. He assaulted men while unconscious and he claimed that it was consensual. He claimed he was doing this consensually. It was all part of a game. And none of it is. You know, you know, you know the line, and I think at the end of the day, the rough sex thing—it's not—it's not. We have a problem with it. It's that the people who want to commit these crimes and the rapists are using it. So it looks like we're having more of a problem with rough sex. We're not. We just have a problem with rapists. There's also another element of this where he tries to use the defense of them staying in a relationship with him. Yeah, and that's also you know that comes down to power dynamics. This is a minor grime star. He is somebody who is very powerfully built as well. But it's a mental thing, more like the physicality of overpowering the women. That's where that comes in. But the the grooming and making them feel like, you know, I'm sure he lavished attention on them when he wasn't assaulting them, but also scared them, made them fearful, made them feel like also that this is something that they deserved, that they should be ashamed of. When you're too, they, like, Three of those women did not report this crime until one of them came forward. Victims involved in this have um, videos related to what's happened dating back years. We're not talking about this happening, um, a flashpoint and, you know, one night and it happened and that's it. This has been happening for years with multiple women. and I'm really glad that he's been found guilty. But this is a systemic problem. If you think that this one man being put in prison is a Me Too movement success and that's the end of it, you are really mistaken. And it's not just Grime's problem, but Grime as a facet of rap as well also has like, there's a the misogyny is very prevalent. You can see it. They wear it openly in a way that perhaps pop music does it surreptitiously, more surreptitiously and behind the scenes because pop music, a lot of the stars of that scene are women. So they, they're front-facing. So the abuse is very covered, which in a way is almost worse. But with um, grime music, because it is a very male-dominated scene, you do see a lot more of the kind of blustering and like your mum or I'm going to take your mum's weave off I think like you know the Stormzy Wimes even even that beef was centred around women women. we had a writer do that for Galdem they wrote about the which is an incredible article yeah great article but she received so much abuse for that article she had to go anonymous the fact that the Animat came out and, and posted on Twitter about how big of an issue this is, not just in um, this one little tiny sector of grime, of the industry mm. as a whole that we support, we play the music of these people, we allow this culture that treats women like objects. We talk about you getting rich and having the cars and having the women as though they're objects to have. That is part of the problem. That's part of rape culture and we need to, we need to start talking about it. And I think people are very averse when it comes to... Music particularly. I think one of the reasons Weinstein was able to be pegged is because he was a producer. He is not at the centre of these movies. People don't have that personal connection to him. When you come to the music and you come to things like very famous actors who've been accused of rape, then there is a very different outcry. When it's a celebrity who is forward-facing, front and centre, you've got people defending them because they feel such a personal connection to their art that they think they cannot possibly do anything wrong or they can't possibly be fingered because then for them, it sullies the art. And it should rightly sully this art, but they cannot stand the idea that it will be taken away from them or tarnished. Bill Cosby was only convicted after his very long career had happened. He was a bit more 
more out of the public eye. It was easier to let him go as a figure. And it also required numerous women. Mm. We don't believe the word of one woman against one man. We need, in this case, four women, actually five that came forward with Solo 45, but only four that could be considered in the trial in this country. In order for us to believe that this happened, it has to be multiple women. Multiple women, video evidence. You need to have those that testimony. You need to have him having the evidence, him admitting it himself. It had to literally have every single thing. And even then, he only got 21 charges convicted in the end rather than the full amount. And as you say, there was one woman who... Who whose evidence couldn't be admitted in this country, so it's like you need you need to have twice as much, three times as much before they even listen to you. And even then, people still say, "Ah, oh, they made it up." You we know? haven't heard his side, is what I yeah. saw people saying on social media. What what side do you need to hear? He said in court, um, he wouldn't have risked his career raping women. That's what you wouldn't have risked. That's the reason you wouldn't do this because wow. it's your career. And yeah, he still did as well. It's no secret that misogyny exists in the music industry, as we've just discussed. Do you think we could potentially see? A music Me Too happening? No. Yeah, I agree. For the reasons that we've outlined, it's too, the music industry is too, it's too much of a moneymaker. There's too many people out there with so many skeletons in their closet. Too many people would suffer. Um, you, it just would bring it down on everyone's heads because it's not, it's like for every Harvey Weinstein out there, there's about 10 more doing this and getting away and that's just in film within music as I said it's very different you've got that personal connection so no I don't think it's going to happen as long as we live in a culture that values uh, rape culture values men above women you're going to have the music industry you're going to have finance you're going to have a whole load of industries where this continues to happen I think the Solo 45 example is great because he's been found guilty but as I said don't ever let that make you think this isn't happening today, won't continue to happen. I'm really glad the Me Too movement has got us talking about this in a more open way. But actually, cases like this for me, the thing about them is it highlights every time someone says, if she if that happened to her, why didn't she speak out? Because you're not believed. When when we talk about this within the context of, of one in five women in this country saying they've been sexually assaulted, we talk about this within the context of 15% saying they felt able to even report it to police, that sexual abuse is the um, lowest conviction rate of any crime in this country. Mm. This is why. Because no one will believe you. And people will go on Twitter and say, well, would it really happen? Was it, you know, was it a rape game as Solo 45 mm. described it? Like, this example needs to be used to say, like, this is why women don't come forward and change men, change the way you behave in order to fix that. If you look at, as Ray was saying, it's like the lowest conviction rate. Rape reporting has actually gone up. Prosecution rates have gone down. They have fallen. The system is not prepared for the Me Too movement to deal with the... Because we're talking about this more and people are coming forward more, but the legislative system is not prepared to deal with actually processing these cases and the police are not prepared to deal with that. They don't know how to handle it. And you've got this trial by social media as well. So the problem is that we're talking about it's great, we're saying that you've got to come forward, you've got to report. Women are getting courage up to, but they've not got the support system in place, the structures in place that are needed to actually prosecute these people carrying out these crimes. And so then you've got even more distress. And you've got these kind of things where the police are taking their phones and looking looking at victims' phones and extracting all texts and evidence to be used against them in court rather than anything that's just relevant to the case. It's a very humiliating process um, trying to report a rape or assault, and it's not getting any better. So I think, you know, it's amazing that we're talking, but there needs to be more than talk. There needs to be grassroots action on the part of the police forces, of the parts of the people who are meant to support you through that of the prosecution. Otherwise, it's not good enough. We're just going to see these rates rising and the prosecution rates falling even further. Annie Mack did do like a Twitter thread and she talked about the music industry. She also said 
Everyone is complicit, the labels, the management, the streaming companies, the radio stations. It's a constant moral conundrum for my team and I, because she's a radio presenter. Does playing a radio edit validate the original lyrics in the first place? Do we not play the song at all? So in terms of that, like, how do we ensure that when artists do commit horrific acts such as this one, they feel the impact? And, you know, from consumer level to companies like iTunes and Spotify and radio companies taking a stance, do we need a zero tolerance policy, you know, that we all just decide that we don't buy, stream or play their music? For example, I still hear R. Kelly's music everywhere. I can't bring myself to play a lot of the music that I actually love. You know, I, I grew up on R&B and hip hop. It's the music that I grew up loving. As I became more aware of my views, my political views around feminism, I actually had to stop listening to that music because I found it so problematic. But I think the idea that we call on uh, consumers, on listeners of that music to be the ones to make that decision lets the likes of Island Records that signed Solo 45 off the hook. This needs to be something that's dealt with on every single level. It's not down to you deciding at home, I'm not going to play this song on Spotify today. This comes down to the way that the music industry, and actually that's Annie Mac's point, this comes down to the way the music industry deals with this. They need to do more. I completely agree. If we put the onus on consumers, not only is that uh, it's, it's not effective, it also means that, you know, one day if you break and you like start streaming a song, you've cracked and you then feel shame. And it's, why is it all on us? Why do we have to sort this out? We can help and aid it by saying, you know what, I'm not going to actively support that artist. But at the end of the day, if they have the recording contract already and the radio stations are playing them and they're getting the publicity, other people will and they're getting it from the top. Um, so, yeah, I completely agree. I think it's hard to say that there's a zero tolerance policy because what would that look like? What would you mean? What we have yeah, to do Does it is, mean like literally... Yeah all these companies just taking the music down but then you have the questions of oh but what about all the other people mm. that like worked on this music and- as much as possible what I would say is companies need to be more diligent if you hear a whisper of this just like then remove them move it why are Solo's 45 stuff still on YouTube why can you still stream all that stuff you they put it down to them he should if he wants to put his music up on an independent platform fine but don't back it with island I guess recordings in terms of like you know if they hear a whisper as you just said mm. someone might argue and be like, what if it's not true? Oh no, no, no. When I say when I say whisper, whisper is more about investigate on your own terms. When I say it's like he was convicted or he has been charged, then put the monetizing on pause. You know, make sure that they can't monetize that music. Make sure that they're not getting rewarded for that. Um, it's a very hard system. There is no like answer, but there is obviously more that these companies can be doing and stop. Yeah, and when there are known predators out there, then just drop them. Just drop them. Like, there are people out there who are they making so much money from that they don't care, And you, but you need people who care in charge. You need people who can say, look, on this one, like, yeah, X is making me loads of funds, but you know what? I actually value the safety of the consumers who listen to this music more because it's not like they're out there. They, they're hurting their own fans. Like, these, he was literally attacking people who came to see him. He was grooming them. Um, but, yeah, basically... Music companies need to do more. It needs to be a top-down solution. If we're going to have a top-down system where we don't get the power, then the pow- the people who are in power are the ones who need to make the difference. I do think it's really important that the likes of Annie Mac is talking about this, though, because we are at a very early stage of what we do about this. You know, we 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 are, Me Too is, is so recent. This has been happening for ages, but, you know, the actual conversations are new or the conversations on the platforms that are happening is new. Having someone like Annie Mack in the position she's in with the power she has in enabled to say what she's saying is brilliant. She is complicit and she's admitted that, you know, she plays music that is by artists who say and do terrible things and yet that music has still been played. The fact we're talking about this, the fact Annie Mack is the person talking about this is great. 
let's continue those conversations. The thing is, the hardest thing I think we have to admit is that we are in all, some way all complicit. That is the th- and that is also what a lot of, I think, DJs and stuff don't want to admit. They don't want to admit that being part of the system means that we are complicit in it. But only by saying that, that, oh, yeah, I have actually streamed this artist. I have played them or, you know, as a radio DJ, I've talked to them. I've interviewed them. I've platformed their, their profile, you know. Can we actually move forward? Yeah. Then can we move forward? Can we say, well, I did that, but that's how the system works. And this is how this goes in together. And this is like the labyrinth. Only by understanding those systems and understanding how the mechanicians all work and saying, yeah, I'm part of it, but this is how we can stop being part of it together. Will we do anything? Only by admitting the problem can we move forwards. Thank you so much both for coming. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Where can people find you on social media? Um, I am underscore Raya on Twitter, Raya UK on Insta. And yeah, there's not many of us. There's, there's not many Rayas She's out very there. good on Twitter. Oh, thanks. There is a porn star called Raya, so I'm not that one. I'm the other one. Not not the porn <laughs> star, the porn Raya. star for your mind. <laughs> um, you can find me at at Lothian McLean on Twitter. If you want to see my thought shots, it's at Moya underscore LM on Instagram. Go forth. Enjoy. In other news, Matt Lucas will be co-hosting The Great British Bake Off. Coachella, Premier League Games and the E3 Gaming Expo have all been postponed due to coronavirus. The UK has been revealed to be more nostalgic for the Empire than other ex-colonial powers. Caroline Flack has been laid to rest in a private funeral. And finally, the Royal Bank of Scotland is offering mortgage and loan relief for coronavirus-affected customers. This has been your Broccoli Weekly. I've been your host, Diora. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Diora. Credits of the clips used and information can be found on our website, www.yourbroccoliweekly.com. You can join the conversation and share your views using the hashtag your Broccoli Weekly. If you liked what you heard, why not give us a rating and review on your favourite podcast app? And if you loved what you heard, please tell your friends. Your Broccoli Weekly is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Castbox, Pocket Casts, and all your favourite apps. Your Broccoli Weekly is produced by Cass Denton. This is a Broccoli Production.